0: I really started this series thinking about when artists are dealing with times like these, right? Dealing with pandemics, dealing with like really serious issues. How do they cope like through their art? And so I had remembered from learning about this years ago about the Dutch still life tradition, the the vanitas still lifes, and I started looking more into that and revisiting that and thinking about the symbolism that was used in there i i love that yes this is a skull right and yes it very overtly you know relates to death but then there's also things like Like a spilled wine glass or a cracked nut or something that also relates to sort of the transience of life, right? And sort of getting past the very overt, very obvious viewing of objects into something more symbolic and maybe a little more cerebral, I think is is just very interesting to me.
1: Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 238th episode, I'm really excited to be joined by Bethany Irons. She spoke with me from Columbia, Missouri, where she lives and works as an assistant professor of graphic design and art therapy at William Woods University. Bethany has a very diverse background as well. She has a BFA and MFA degree studying painting, and she later went on to receive various design degrees as well as a Ph.D. in art education. We talk about how especially digital processes start to influence her work as she moves away from physical painting to creating her works through the computer, through use of the trackpad and Photoshop to create these works that are very much paintings but are digital. It allows her this... Great ability to manipulate and adjust color and composition. We talk about her most recent series of illustrations, her Vanita still life paintings that utilize various symbols to explore ideas of life and death, the passage of time, as well as branding, domesticity, nostalgia, the really rich and open-ended. And all of these works were created during the pandemic and how, of course, that weighed heavily on creating these works. We talk all about that coming up in the interview. I would remind listeners that there's just a few weeks left to apply to Studio Break's 2020 Pro competition. Our juror, Liz Tran, will be selecting five artists for an upcoming appearance on Studio Break and to share their work. Again, professional artists include emerging, mid career, established, and outsider artists. Unfortunately, students cannot apply to this competition. The competition's open to all 2D, 3D, and new media artists. If you want more information, go to StudioBreak.com, look for our competition page. And it's quite simple to apply. You submit a small fee, you send an email identifying who you are and including a website and or Instagram account and you are all set. Your work will be reviewed and who knows, you might wind up on Studio Break. I would note that the first 50 BIPOC artists will have their fees waived. So once again, StudioBreak.com, look for the competition page for more details. Again, the deadline for this is November 1st. Just a quick reminder that Studio Break has a bunch of interviews with artists on Studio Break. So peruse our archive. Again, each of our posts have images of the artist's artwork, links to their website so you can find out all about them. And, of course, you can listen to their interview right in the default player or click those links and subscribe to the podcast so that you've always got something to listen to in the studio. You can Find us on Facebook, so please like us there. You can find us on Twitter, at Studio Break, and of course on Instagram, follow us at Studio Underscore Break. And with those announcements out of the way, let's dive right into this episode with Bethany Irons. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break. Bethany Irons, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I've, I've been following your Instagram for a while now, and so it's yeah, it's, it's really an honor to be on here.
1: Absolutely. Thanks so much for participating. And it was very exciting to kind of get familiar with your illustrative work uh, via Instagram and and learning more a little bit about you. But I didn't realize also that you have a a design background as well as a fine art background. So it'll be interesting to kind of break that down coming up. And, of course, maybe we could start just by, you know, was that something that was always interesting, art and, and design as a kid?
2: Yeah,
0: I have. I've always been an artist, I guess. And I've always been interested in art. There was never any sort of you know, different career trajectory that I've ever had. There was one time maybe in like fifth grade where I (laughs) wanted to be a meteorologist Mm -hmm. (laughs) until I realized all the math that went into that. And that was quickly became not in my vision, I guess, um, at that point. But yeah, I've, I've always wanted to be an artist, um, it's always been visual art, obviously, but I started off as a graphic design major in my undergrad. And I had decided somewhere along the way that I really need to get serious about this. And because I wasn't when I first started. <laughs> and I took a couple of years off and I came back as a painter and decided to pursue painting. And so I got my BFA and my MFA in. In art with an emphasis in painting, then yeah, everything kind of came full circle. And now I'm back to doing digital art.
1: Interesting, interesting. And I'm curious then too, kind of growing up, were you somebody then that was very, very hands on in terms of art making in terms of, you know, you had the mega paint set, drawing set, and you name it, essentially.
0: My mom, actually, she had painted, we watched a lot of Bob Ross and you know she painted these beautiful landscapes and I have never really been able to do that type of work but but yeah I've always had my my pencils my sketchbook I kind of grew up in the 80s so I had one of those those little like drawing pads where you would it had a plastic sheet on the top and you would lift up the plastic sheet and it would erase your drawing and then you could start a new one (laughs) I I carried that around everywhere. But yeah, I've always been very hands-on and very much interested in drawing objects also.
1: And before I forget, you know, where are you from initially? Are you from the Midwest then?
0: I was born in West Plains, Missouri, but uh, we moved up to South Dakota when I was, I think, around one. And I was there until like my mid-20s, really on and off a little bit. My my dad lives in Wyoming and so I would spend my summers in Wyoming and then the rest of the year in South Dakota with my mom. And then yeah, just moved down to Missouri for grad school and I've really been here ever since.
1: I'm curious then too, you know, you kind of describe this idea of maybe always kind of being interested in the arts where your parents kind of, you know, eager to kind of have you go through that door, I guess.
0: They've always been very supportive of whatever I've done. My mom being interested in the visual arts, she's always, you know, thought it was a great idea, I guess, or at least made me think that, you know, she's supportive of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And my dad, when he was young, I remember him telling me a story that uh, when he was young, he, he drew a picture of a horse and somebody had said, you know, it's not very good. And after getting sort of that negative feedback. He never really went back into that. Mm -hmm. But he's always, you know, been pretty supportive of me too. But he's a little bit different of a personality than I am. He grew up in Missouri, actually, but uh he lives in Wyoming. And he is a he's a power lifter, uh, a world champion power lifter. And he has worked in the coal mines up there for many years. And so he's very much, you know, all about work ethic mm-hmm. i guess and that part of him and that part of his parenting has really been instilled in me i think in my artistic practice so it's from both of my parents and both of their i guess ways of being in the world are reflected in who i am and who i am as an artist now
1: wow that's pretty interesting for sure think about you know how all of these things impact us and and the things that we decide to do and did you take a lot of classes, you know, throughout grade school, high school, that kind of thing too?
0: In the the school that I went to, we actually had art classes. I know that those are increasingly not, you know, becoming a non thing in schools now, which is, which is kind of heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I did. I always took all of the art classes. Yeah. It's always really been a part of my life in that way.
1: And so you were describing earlier then, so when you decided to go for your BFA, you started out more in the graphic design area? Is that what you're saying?
0: Yeah, I started off as a graphic designer because I guess my way of thinking was, okay, this is actually something that I could, like, make a career out of. hmm I didn't feel as confident about doing that from the the start anyways, as like a painter or, you know, going into drawing or something like that. And so initially I was in graphic design because I thought that it was more practical, Mm -hmm. but you know, about a year into it, I, I became a little disenchanted with it and I, I really wanted to use my artistic voice, which at the time, I didn't feel like I could do with graphic design. Um, I didn't really have the tools to know how to do that. Like I said, I had taken some time off from that, uh, taken a couple of years off from school and realized that, you know, there's nothing else really that I want to do besides painting and Making art in that way. So why don't I just go for it and then figure it out from there? Which was a very scary thing for me to do. I think for a lot of people who grow up in, you know, lower to middle class families, you're very cognizant of the power of money and about the power of not having money.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So that was really, you know, a driving force in where I initially started. But But it's also really important to me and was, you know, instilled in me growing up that I need to do what what fulfills me and make makes me happy. And so that's why I continued with art and kind of continued down this road where I was very unsure of the outcome. But I knew that maybe in some ways kind of a privileged uh, thing to say, but I knew that it
1: would work out. I would imagine just having an insane work drive is like something that's super, super helpful for that.
0: Yeah. You know, both of my parents, they've always just been really hard workers and yeah, instilled that in all of us. I have, I have three older sisters and yeah, that was something that was always, you know, a part of, of our lives, that really strong work ethic.
1: And something that seems so applicable too about the art side of it is that it's something that you don't have to have like a physical ability with necessarily like basketball or, mm-hmm. you know, the common things that I, I talk to artists about that they don't actually maybe do. Although I've talked to plenty of artists that are, that are athletes as well, but there is just something about grinding away at something and, and trying to be very particular about it and learning a craft. That's just so, I think, appealing.
0: Yeah. And thinking about like that, that physical ability to, um, I had mentioned my dad being a power lifter and then my mom, she is very athletic as well. I am not at all athletic. I think I attempted to be at various points in my life, but um, I'm an indoor person, I guess you could say. <laughs> but yeah, I've, I've been able to, to channel that energy into, into my art.
1: Well, so getting to that, I would imagine there's a little bit of a shift then as you, you know kind of move away from graphic design, but I'm sure that you're taking some of those entry-level you know, drawing 2D kind of classes as well.
0: Yeah. And, and those were the classes that I, that I really enjoyed. And I, I felt like I, I belonged in, I guess, Mm -hmm. just because, you know, I'd been drawing and painting my whole life. So it was familiar to me. The working on the computer was not, although, you know, I'm, I'm technically a millennial, I guess.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: I'm about to turn 37, but I did not have a computer growing up. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a staple in our classrooms, even. I I think I I took a typing class in high school but it was you know the black screen with the green text right mm-hmm. <laughs> I, technology was not a thing for me growing up and so when I went to college you know I got my first computer and started learning about all of these things online you know doing like in photoshop or illustrator it was just not not familiar to me and I felt very much out of my element Whereas paint and pencils were very familiar and in some ways very comforting. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that that's a part of it, but also why I've revisited it later on in my life and kind of actually melded the two together. So it's like it's it's very much my work right now is very much still, you know, painterly in a lot of ways, but it's just done with a different tool because I've become more comfortable with it over, you know, the past like 20 years.
1: Yeah. And again, I think that's something that's kind of apparent about it. It's just very easy for me to see those as those recent works, especially as paintings in terms of, you know, your experiences then, you know, painting as an undergrad, like what kind of things were you interested in making?
0: We did a lot of, of figurative things. And I do remember probably one of my favorite classes that I took in undergrad was, I believe it was drawing 3 but it was figure drawing. And well the instructor first off he was great but uh but I just I thoroughly enjoyed seeing the figure as as sort of a a plane in space or seeing the figure as like a series of shapes was was something that that particular instructor really really got us to look at uh, in a different way and never before had I really seen objects in the world as just a series of shapes, objects or figures. And that's something that, that is actually pretty important in my current work, just working with simple shapes. Kind of getting back to your question, you know, I did a lot of figurative stuff. I liked doing it and it was a, a big part of the curriculum at the university I was at. But we also did, you know, still lifes which interestingly enough, it's come up again uh, later on in my life. A lot of it was, you know, assignment driven. And then when I went to get my MFA, it it was all about, okay, now you do what you want to do. And I didn't necessarily know what it was that I wanted to do. And so personally, I I really struggled for the first, really the first couple of years of my three year MFA experience because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know really who I was in that way or what I wanted to say as an artist. In in the bachelor's program that I was in, they they taught us a lot of technique and they taught us a lot about, you know, art history and this is how other artists have done this, you know, which I think is pretty common in, in BFA programs. But as an MFA student, I mean, it's all about, you know, coming up with a body of work that speaks to your experience in the world and what you want to have, you know, a conversation about. And so it took me a while to to get to know what that was. And so I guess, you know, it's a long-winded response <laughs> to your question here, but um, I didn't really understand what I wanted to, what I was really interested in until the MFA experience. And then it really started to become about, you know, consumerism, objects, sort of domestic spaces, those sort of things, uh, they were starting to emerge, like IKEA culture and um, Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of stuff started to come out, you know, when I was a master's student. And some of it, you know, I still kind of hold on to. But I think that the domestic experience and being at home, which has become more relevant right now, during mm-hmm. this pandemic, that's always been a part of my experience. I think that also, you know, growing up in in South Dakota, you're at home a lot. And uh, <laughs> we didn't have, you know, at the time that I was growing up, art galleries or museums that we could frequent, right? And, you know, we didn't necessarily have the means to where we could go to San Francisco or New York or, you know, go to the, go to the MoMA, right? And so a lot of my experiences were spent at home, part of my childhood. We were, we lived on a farm. Really, my my experience of the art world was through the television, through, you know, like Bob Ross, those sort of things that were on TV. But yeah, spending time at home became, you know, a theme that has continued on.
1: So, you know, one thing that's really interesting about what you're just saying is that I would imagine just having that really technical background then in painting and kind of maybe not knowing what you wanted to do as an undergrad, you know, at some point, though, became really exciting then in graduate school, because, you know, like you were just talking about kind of exploring all these domestic ideas and, and products and all of those things, maybe I would imagine started to kind of become part of your work.
0: Yeah, you know, it it was exciting. It um, was also very terrifying, I think, in some ways, because mm-hmm. I I really had to look at myself and look at my you know place in the world in a way that I didn't have the freedom to do before. So yeah, there's something about it that's really liberating, you know, feeling that freedom to to do what you want, but then also it can be a very anxiety inducing experience. When I was when I was in the MFA program, I wouldn't trade the experience for anything, but there were times where I felt like instructors wanted me to make work that looked like theirs mm-hmm. and me, you know, partly, you know, in my being naive, maybe in a part of me not really knowing what I wanted to do, I followed their lead a little too much. So, so there was a lot of trial and error for me, which I think a lot of people, you know, that have been in an MFA program can probably resonate with that. It was definitely not an easy experience. I don't think that it should be either. But yeah, I, I really had to personally decide what it was that was that I wanted to say and sort of parse that out from what my instructors were wanting me to say. And so, you know, it also comes with kind of standing your ground and and knowing yourself enough to realize and to be able to articulate what it is you want to say.
1: Well, and it's always such a different experience, you know, in that you're coming environment where everybody knows you, you've been kind of taking classes forever. You've been having critiques forever. And then you're kind of thrust into this situation where these are, you know, people that maybe, you know, like what you've done before and they want you to Mm -hmm. totally change that up. And, you know there's so many different people I would imagine too, in terms of that other experience that you just came from. I would imagine you know that was something that was interesting for sure is just how different places can be, you know, especially if you're if you're left to <laughs> to kind of figure the stuff out or make meaning for yourself. I don't know
0: at the University of South Dakota, you know it's in South Dakota, so there's not which is not heavily populated, of course, but we had one painting instructor. We had one photography instructor, one ceramics instructor. And so being in the painting program, that one painting instructor, he had a very specific way of working. He was very much like an abstract expressionist sort mm-hmm. of uh, you know, following that, that sort of way of thinking. But uh, that's what I had kind of been trained in, right? Uh, I didn't have much other input, I guess, in that department. And so then going into the MFA program where, you know, you have like five different professors and they're with their own ideals and their own, um, you know, set of skills and styles and uh, aesthetic philosophies. Right. And many of those are competing. And so it was it was really a time where I, for the very first time, really had to decide which of these do I agree with because before it was just you know the one the one way of working so that was that was really important for me to to go through that experience you know as conflicted as i am sometimes with the politics of education i think that there there's really no way that i i could be the artist that i am today without going through those those experiences.
1: Was there a particular experience or body of work or artist or what, what kind of changed that, I guess, in terms of that initial experience of graduate school?
0: I discovered um, Bruno Munari. He was an Italian artist and designer, and he'd been invested in kinesthetic learning. So like carrying out physical activities, like you learn by doing rather than just, you know, watching. Mm-hmm. I learned a little bit about him in the MFA program, but I learned more about him when I was in the art education um, Ph.D. program. He wrote a book called Circle, Square, Triangle, and it was basically a, a case study of those, you know, three shapes. The overall thesis kind of being that everything in art and nature has this this underlying system, like this underlying structure through these shapes, and our job as artists is to use them in unique ways. And this kind of changed my way of thinking that, you know, I could start with these simple shapes and keeping it simple, but then transforming it and into something that is maybe a little more complicated, but still keeping it simple and having that freedom to know that I didn't have to overcomplicate things that I could start simple, that I could keep it simple. That was really kind of the turning point for me. And when, when I was in uh, the MFA program, I did very simple compositions. I did a lot of things with stripes. And so I had constructed like furniture, like a Mm -hmm. couch, a, a vacuum, that sort of thing out of painting materials. So, you know, like canvas, the wood stretchers, that sort of thing, but just using stripes and as, as the element that I painted on these things and the stripes, you know, were, were symbolic for other things. But from there and kind of going back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, my, my professors, they really liked that and it was fairly well-received and I probably could have stayed there, but I wanted to do something else with it, I guess. And so, yeah, just kind of that point where I didn't have to overcomplicate things, that I could keep things simple and that I could just use these really simple shapes that you know I learned as a kid how to use those, right? Letting sort of the, the content and the concept of the work transcend in some ways some of my technique I suppose I think that that was kind of a, a turning point for me which I think comes up today too with like you know what I do in Photoshop
1: well and what did you kind of leave there kind of making then
0: I made the furniture and you know did the sort of stripes as a I guess symbolic of of branding in a way so I made this furniture and then I also made these kits. That had everything in them to make the furniture sort of a a, a play on you know the IKEA culture.
2: Right,
0: right. <laughs> they were glued together, right? So they were not functional, and the furniture itself was not functional. Like you could not sit on the couch, right? It would crumble ble- beneath you <laughs> if you tried to sit on it. And so these these things were just kind of um, uh, a failed stand-in. And I guess a commentary on our our culture's reliance on the objects that we hold in our lives, and sort of we look to objects to bring us comfort, which also kind of speaks to how I was feeling at the time about consumerism, and I guess those those sort of concepts and threads were really interesting to me and um, but that's that's where I left it and then when I left grad school. I I didn't have a studio anymore. So that's kind of how I started going to my computer. And that, that was sort of the impetus for doing things digitally because my computer, my laptop was everywhere that I went and I didn't have to have a studio and I didn't have to buy paints or canvases you know, anymore. I could just just use Photoshop. And so it was, I guess, more out of necessity and convenience than anything else that I started doing work on the computer.
1: And did you wind up staying in the area? Then you said earlier, you still live there.
0: So I graduated and then I got a job as an instructor at a community college in Iowa, near Omaha, Nebraska. And I had taught there for a couple of years. And my at-the-time boyfriend, who's now my husband, he had still lived in Missouri. That's where we met. And the long-distance thing was becoming a little too difficult. So I was like, well, what can I do down there? And so I decided to go back to school. So I went for my PhD. And I I still actually teach for that college, just online only, part-time. But yeah, so I had moved up to the Omaha area for a couple of years and, and then moved back down to Missouri.
1: Maybe talk a little bit about that aspect of, you know, how studying, you know, I'm assuming design kind of also would maybe kind of impact that idea of of making something, you know, like in terms of having a, a MFA and then, you know, going to kind of get a design degree. Was that something where you kind of were like, wow, all these tools are so much easier than having to try to like tape you know you certainly like I couldn't imagine you know making the type of work that you do in the same way obviously if it was if it was physical
0: what was kind of lacking in me doing paintings was the the freedom to revise things when I was doing painting I I really had to plan things out of course Um, you have to kind of embrace the the happy accidents those types of things but yeah, when I started doing work digitally, I had this whole new freedom where I could revise things as much as I wanted to to get them exactly the way that I wanted to. And so, for me it really opened up the door to all these different possibilities of work that I could make. A lot of people may think that, you know, the computer is sort of limited in that way, but for me it it was more it was more of just opening up the floodgates to possibilities because I could do you know as far as like two d art goes like I could do whatever I wanted, and I didn't have to worry about the the cost of art materials or you know the time spent on something where if i if I wanted to revise it, you know I couldn't paint over it again if i you know unless I wanted to have a texture to it, so all of those things were. I felt in some ways were really limiting to my art practice that sort of were alleviated when, when I started doing things digitally.
1: I guess what came first like chronologically to that too, because, you know, we kind of move on from an experience as, as, as a painter in air quotes, I guess. Um, but I mean, you know, as you're studying, are you starting like any particular series of illustration or, um, anything like that in terms of, I guess, a progression
0: for my, master's thesis show essentially recreated a living room set. And on the walls, I did these text paintings. It was, you know, essentially just like house paint on to canvas and using the stripes in the negative space of the stripes, I allowed letters there to to essentially create a word, right? Mm-hmm. Words in the English language are interesting in that, you know, there's many words that have the you know, same spelling, same pronunciation, but depending on the context, they can mean two very different things like heteronyms and homonyms. And so I did those, you know, with house paint and canvas for this set that I made. And then when I decided to start doing things digitally, I was like, well, this may be the Easiest thing I could do at this point, since I'm just relearning all of these programs. So just taking the stripe, just taking, you know, a simple rectangle and then allowing the the negative space to sort of, you know, just like I did in, in my paintings to create letters and to create words. So that's how I initially started. Um, that that was my first series, this uh, uh with typography.
1: But one of the things that's interesting about the series that kind of comes after that, and I guess I should just kind of remind everybody, uh your website's BethanyIrons.com, and there's there's so much to check out, so definitely go check it out. You know, but the series that comes after that, you know, is interesting and in then it starts to kind of, you know, play with some of those domestic ideas that you were talking about a little bit as well, where you mm-hmm. start to kind of incorporate, you know, text and you know, pattern as well as various like almost still life components, you know, I guess to kind of give us a little bit of a background of that series or, you know, I guess where it was coming from. I mean, was that something that happened, you know, right afterwards or are you somebody that's kind of working on a number of different projects at the same time?
0: I very much work in series, like categories, like I work on one category at a time. And then when I've just exhausted it totally, like I'll move on to something else. So I had done probably like 20 of those, you know, text uh, typography paintings, I guess you could call them digital mm-hmm. renderings until I, I was like, okay, I'm I think I'm done with this. I think I've kind of learned all that I need to know from from this series. And then I really started to become interested in like, what else am I capable of with these programs, specifically Photoshop? And so I started doing, yeah, just very, very simple illustrations of like a bowling ball in a bowling alley or something um those were some of my earlier works mm-hmm. trying to do more uh representational stuff i've always also been interested in fashion and uh in in clothing
2: mm-hmm.
0: when i was when i was probably in 5th grade i think it was i had actually written a letter to jc penny and i i wanted to be a fashion designer for them mm-hmm. and they They wrote back a really nice letter saying that, you know, you'll have to go get your degree first. And, you know, once you do that, they come back to us. So there was a brief time in there where I wanted to design clothing, which is interesting that it has come up now later on in my life. But uh, So some of my illustrations involve like clothing and sort of things that we, I guess, adorn ourselves with and sort of like a uniform that we all sort of have in our lives. Relating again to the domestic and all of that. And then from there, recreating these clothing pieces, I really started to become interested in the pattern aspect of those.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And the patterns kind of extended to walls of interior spaces that I would try to recreate. And then, yeah, from there, you know, I started getting much more into illustrating scenes from from interiors and Then, yeah, it started getting much more into the the still lifes back in March.
1: You know, I can see it in terms of some of the more recent work, too, the way that some of the patterns literally then become like backgrounds for for some of the still life work. Mm -hmm. You know, relative to the kind of other illustrations, you kind of talk about you describe a utopian vision of what could have been. And I thought that was just such an Mm -hmm. interesting phrase because there's, you know, certainly things that you can kind of recognize from maybe domestic life. Are those things that are based off of, you know, real life experiences kind of like pulling from that in order to kind of have an idea of kind of what to work through?
0: Growing up, I, I had mentioned, you know, we were at times, you know, lower to middle class and my parents were split up as well. So my, my domestic life for, I guess for lack of a better term, or I guess a more succinct term for it would just be that it, it had, many moments of turmoil in it and i feel like a lot of my childhood i didn't feel necessarily safe all the time and so i find that as an adult i am doing everything that i can to sort of create a world around me where i feel safe and where i feel you know maybe in some ways i'm compensating for the childhood that i never had And, you know, I don't have children myself. I don't plan on having children. But this is my time, I guess, to where I'm in control of my life, I guess, and I'm in control of my space. And so, in a way, through illustrations, I can kind of extend that and, you know, recreate spaces that, that either I wish I had when I was younger or recreate like scenes that I wish I was a part of, you know, cause I, I feel like in some ways I, I maybe wasn't allowed to be a child as much as, as I would have liked. And I think with my personality too, I, I always wanted to, to be an adult, you know, mm-hmm. even when I was a child. Um, so, yeah, I think in a lot of ways it's, you know, recreating things, what what could have been what I had hoped would be in my adult life.
1: The, there's an interesting aesthetic relative to the works where they kind of have this flatness and it almost kind of makes me, you know, think of uh, various scrapbooking paper because everything is so you know, very specific. So, you know, like in terms of like a process of how you're putting this together, I don't know, maybe kind of just describe that aspect of how you're working through it a little bit.
0: I guess to start, I, I utilize Instagram for a lot of inspiration. Mm -hmm. I don't have a whole lot of photos from my childhood. The few that I do have, they have a very specific aesthetic to them. We had lived in a, a trailer that had the dark wood paneling on the walls. And I very distinctly remember that. And that will show up a lot in my work. My mom had bought this green velvet couch when I was maybe like four. And it was actually pretty trendy. And (laughs) even now, like, I'd like to have that couch. (laughs) And I guess this kind of comes up later on when when I'm making my furniture. But My mom just got this beautiful couch and I decide to take a Sharpie to the back of it and draw all over it. Mm. So I, I very distinctly remember like the textures of that green couch and that sort of, you know, being like olive green, the textures and colors and some of the patterns. Like we had this, we had another sort of velvety couch that had this flower pattern all over it. And I do have a few pictures of that, but those things, those patterns, those textures, those colors, those sort of like muted, like 70s, 80s colors, they come up a lot because of, I guess, the memory aspect of it. And because, you know, in your childhood, you kind of build your aesthetic to a degree. So thinking back to, you know, photographs that I may have or just memory. Right. But then also um, looking to like Instagram and I follow a lot of accounts on there that are, are kind of nostalgic in some ways. So like there's, I think, I think it's called like old school moms and there's another one called old school dads Mm -hmm. and it's all user submitted images, uh, photos from like the seventies and eighties that sometimes, you know, I'll get inspiration from looking at those. So there's a lot of, um, a lot of research kind of happening behind the scenes before I do anything. And then when, you know, I get inspired by like a particular item or a particular pattern, that's really how a lot of my, my still life work has started. And I'll do that in Photoshop, like I'll, I'll recreate it as best I can. And sometimes I'll take that like a wallpaper or, you know, like a, like an image of a, a bottle or something. I'll take that and I won't necessarily know what to do with it right away. So I'll just save it on my computer. And then I may come back to it later and sort of combine it with other objects that I've made, you know, in the interim. And I'll sort of collage these pieces together and then, you know, start integrating them and putting on shadows and, and all of that. So it really starts with you know, photographs, doing a little bit of research and reflection as well, and then creating one object, possibly saving it for later before I sort of collage it with other
1: objects. And at this point, like in terms of your your tools, I mean, are you using like a, a stylus and like iPad setup or?
0: So my husband bought me a, a Wacom tablet a few years ago. That had come in really handy when I when I did my dissertation because I it was an illustrated autoethnography. So each page had an illustration on it and it was just like black and white to sort of have this like coloring book feel to it. That tablet with the stylus was, was really handy. But in the still life pieces, I just used my laptop and my finger on the trackpad Of my laptop. And so it's very much in some ways like finger painting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I may be, you know, making things harder on myself for doing it that way and not using like an iPad or something. But kind of going back to what I was saying earlier, I really just use shapes. I start with just simple shapes. And this is in Photoshop. So I'll use the edit, transform, and then warp tool to manipulate those shapes to fit whatever this object ends up being. So yeah, a lot of it is, is just using shapes and manipulating the shapes. And then every once in a while I will use like the brush tool or like a lasso tool on there to sort of make my own shape. But yeah, a lot of it is just shapes. And so, um, using my finger on the trackpad is a lot easier for doing that.
1: Well, I think there's always something interesting about, you know, learning a bit about somebody's uh, craft. You know, you forget that they have like a whole history of kind of developing this. So, you know, for me, when I look at this, I just kind of like, how, you know, like, how do we do this? You know, I think that's probably one of the things that, you know, really drew me in aside from, you know, like you were kind of describing, I guess, kind of like a 70s, 80s kind of color scheme. Because I think that, you know, especially in the the most recent illustrations, the the still lives really, really kind of come into play are these then kind of ones that they're kind of like idealized from Instagram or are you actually setting any of these still lifes up or?
0: So from the start, when I, when I started this series, it was kind of done out of boredom. Like a lot of artists out there, like I always need to be doing something and I always, I feel like I need to be productive all the time Mm -hmm. for, for better or for worse, I guess. And so when the pandemic hit, I was left with all of this time And also, you know, my objects of inspiration were either in my house or, you know, going off of like Instagram or something. I chose to actually start with just sticking with what's in my house, like what's around me during this time, because I was at home, right? We all were. I was kind of stuck there. And so, so yeah, I did start out this series by actually setting up still lifes in my house and trying to recreate them. So they were actually physically set up. And then as I got through the series, I guess it was probably around like the, maybe like 16th or 17th um, illustration in that series. I had kind of, I guess, liberated myself a little bit from just using the items that I had. And I was like also limited by the items that I had in my home, (laughs) right? So I started looking up, other things like online and sort of using source imagery and in just photographs found online or just by doing google searches or um like for instance on i think it's the still life 19 where i have this this container that has like a mushroom illustration on the outside Mm -hmm. it's like a container for kitchen utensils. I did search doing like Google searches of that particular container because I grew up with that container, but I didn't have it in my house. So uh, I guess just doing, you know, a Google search was really helpful for me in that I wasn't just trying to illustrate it from memory, but I also had something, you know, a photograph to, to go off of for it. So yeah, I, towards the end of this um, series as it is right now, I've, I've allowed myself to to reach outside of just just the images that I have in my home and sort of reimagining, you know, if I had this image in here, what would it look like?
1: Well, and one of the things that's interesting to me about it is you almost kind of start to form narratives to them. You know, mm-hmm. because there's certainly like in every one of them, there's going to be something that you start to kind of recognize. You know, there's there's book elements, there's card elements. You know, there might be a couple of cans of high life around cleaning mm-hmm. supplies and takeout food, and you're like, oh, maybe. You know, <laughs> like I start thinking about it in that that context. You know, of of the pandemic, and I start thinking like, oh. You know, maybe it's a cleaning night with high life. I don't know. You know, like, yeah, (laughs) it's 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 so it's interesting because you start to like I said, you start to kind of become really imaginative about some of the things that are in there. And I think that's one of the things that makes it really kind of universal. Like, I think there's there's one that has like a a Vornado style fan, which I'm a big fan Mm. of, which is Mm -hmm. a terrible pun. But but I'm like, oh my gosh, I recognize this. Like I, you know, have a born NATO, but I wish I had one of these older ones and I don't know, there's like this really kind of interesting combination of nostalgia and kind of all of those things kind of built into the the still life. And I, I believe too, you talk a little bit about, you know, some different ideas as a result of the pandemic relative to these. I mean, what kind of things are you are you thinking about in terms of like maybe what you're selecting? Is there like a a really like set up kind of narrative or is it something where you just really start working and then, you know, just keep adding to it.
0: I start with, you know, an object that I, that I either have in my home or that, you know, I, I kind of want to challenge myself to try to recreate. And then from there I start, um, I start collaging things together and trying to kind of come up with a story, um, some sort of a narrative to where these aren't just, you know, random objects, but but they do tell a story and in a way that, you know, most of us can get, right? I don't want it to be so, you know, individualistic or so unique to my experience that it can't be shared. Like for instance, with the still life 15, I put in there a postcard from the devil's tower
2: Mm -hmm. national
0: monument, which, you know, my dad lives in Wyoming. I spent half of my life there. And so kind of putting that in there while it is individualistic to me and my experiences growing up in that area and kind of my, I guess, just geographical location. Um, it's also more of a universal symbol of getting out of the house and being able to travel again, sort of that want to explore again when you've you know been in quarantine for four months, mm-hmm. and so there's there's little I guess nuggets in there that I I feel like you know they are very unique to who I am, but they can also be shared in in a different way.
1: Yeah, and well, there's there's some that are I guess maybe more relative to the pandemic. Like there's there's mm-hmm. one. Uh, Vanita Still Life 5, which, again, has a whole ton of cleaning mm-hmm. products and sponges and, you know, Lysol and <laughs> these things that, you know, become very, very familiar to us. And then, you know, in comparison, to say the one that you were just kind of describing, you know, there's some objects that you might think in there like a camera. You know, like, again, I even realize like myself as somebody that really likes using an actual camera, having bought one in the last couple of years, you know, I realized recently that I haven't been doing that like I used to after, you know, we've been living in the pandemic. So I start kind of seeing some of those symbols in there, and that's, you know, something that you kind of talk about a lot too. You know, what are the kind of, I guess, interesting things about symbols, especially that you, you know, really like to kind of include and incorporate into your work as well?
0: I really started this series thinking about when artists are dealing with. Times like these, right? Dealing with pandemics, dealing with like really serious issues. How do they cope like through their art? And so I had remembered from learning about this years ago about the Dutch still life tradition, the, the vanitas, still lifes, And I started looking more into that and revisiting that and thinking about the symbolism that was used in there. I I love that. Yes, this is a skull, right? And yes, it very overtly, you know, relates to death. But then there's also things like, like a spilled wine glass or a cracked nut or something that also relates to sort of the transience of life, right? And sort of getting past the very overt, very obvious viewing of objects into something more symbolic and maybe a little more cerebral, I think is, is just very interesting to me. The symbols that I, often use in in here are like plants you'll see plants or some sort of I guess nod to plants in some way either like a flower wallpaper or having an actual plant in in the still life plants you know are very symbolic of life but also you know for many plants especially the ones that I have in my own house there is a a lifespan and sooner or later they will you know wilt and die And so that symbolic nature to life specifically and to hope, like when I, when I get a new plant and I bring it home, it, it has all of this hope within it that, you know, I'm going to take care of this thing and I'm going to watch it grow, which I think during this time is, is really a, an important thing to have is hope and in seeing kind of the light at the end of the tunnel and knowing that even though you know we're in this really horrible time right now like things are still happening they're still growing and so yeah plants are in there a lot food as well I like many people took up a lot of baking during Mm. this time (laughs) and um so you'll see a lot of a lot of that in there too and you know it's nourishment right but also food rots at a certain point right so food is you know symbolic of the transient experience of of life as well but then also uh travel you know like i said with the the postcard with the the devil's tower postcard. There's also one of this little like VW figurine van that we have in our house uh, (laughs) that um, and kind of like getting outside of the house again and kind of relating to hope as well. Like someday we're going to be able to go on trips again. And someday we're going to be able to, you know, maybe not return to the same normalcy that we've been used to, but but, you know, we're going to be able to be more of a active part of the world again and to see other places besides the walls of our of our house.
1: Something that I would normally ask anybody was, you know, like what kind of time are we are we talking about in terms of working on one of these? And you know, are you kind of jumping from like a, a few different compositions that you're working on, or is it like a singular thing?
0: Besides those those few objects that I may just kind of like save for later. If I don't know how to fit them in right away, I will typically work on something from start to finish. I'll, I'll get sort of obsessed with finishing it. Um, I, I do not typically just like leaving something for later. And so, many of, of, especially my recent work, many of the things that you'll see are about like a 12 hour time investment. And so it's like from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., you know, I'll just work on that piece for, you know, those 12 hours, maybe take a break in there. But I really do become like obsessive with finishing things. So that in another way is kind of nice, you know, working on the computer that I can that I can do that and that I don't necessarily have to like wait for paint to dry Mm-hmm. <laughs> some things are more complicated to try to recreate than others, but some things, you know, I'm I'm able to do a lot quicker on the computer than I would be able to with paint.
1: You've got some pattern pieces that get incorporated in terms of the backgrounds for a lot of these that are from, you know, the pattern segment on your body of work. So you kind of have, you know, maybe some things kind of to, to just start generating ideas. And then it sounds like then you're, you're adding that one object and then starting to build this whole thing around this, this new, I guess, relationship with all these different objects and and a different experience.
0: Yeah. And that, that to me is really something that brings me a lot of joy in creating these is yeah. Relationship between the different objects. That's really fun to me is like starting off with with a crazy wallpaper right that is super busy and then trying to find objects that that go with that 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 don't you know overwhelm the eye or seem out of place but that seem to have always been in that environment all along that's a welcome challenge for me and i really like that that affordance that working digitally gives me
1: well and as somebody that really loves color myself in terms of you know my own work You know, I'm especially curious, like, I mean, you know, you've talked a little bit about being inspired from, you know, various sources, um, Instagram, but I guess, is there anything that in particular, like, you could maybe talk about even about that? Just because, like, again, it just seems so specific. The color palette just seems so... Harmonious. I can't think of a better better word. Everything seems like it fits so well, and I'm sure that's because you're investing a lot of time in it. But I don't know. That that's something that seems really powerful to me about the work. It's just there's a there's a welcomeness to it, I guess, for for lack of a better word.
0: <laughs> well, thank you. So, kind of going back to the work that I made during my MFA. So I had mentioned that I just use stripes, right, and on all the objects that I made, and those stripes had a very specific color scheme. So it was red, green, blue, yellow, black, and white, Mm -hmm. which you'll see in some of the, the text paintings that I have on my site. Those six colors were used in the opponent process theory of color vision. So essentially thinking that this theory that we all see color very differently, but we see color through three different channels. So we see it through a red and green channel. Another channel is blue and yellow, and then the other one's white and black, right? Luminosity in contrast. And this theory of perception and sort of using the colors associated with that theory of perception and kind of relating back to context and context of words and meaning of words, right? but but using those six very specific colors for so long i was completely married to them and i was like i will never stray from these colors <laughs> right like this these are my colors and this is what's going to define me as an artist right but after a while after using them for like six years or so i i couldn't do it anymore like i had to i had to branch out i'm like you i love color also and I feel like once I allowed myself to go outside of that, outside of that thing that I felt like I was becoming known for and outside of that thing that I felt like was accepted in my work, it's being, you know, very theory driven and rooted in, in, you know, theory. Once I kind of allowed myself that freedom and, you know, nobody is forcing me to do this anymore, right? Like Mm -hmm. nobody (laughs) did from the beginning, but, you know, Giving myself that freedom was really something that that I needed and that I felt like really made my work a lot richer in some ways. I feel like I have been training my eye since, you know, as far back as I can remember about what goes well together in my mind, like I like I said like fashion, right? And kind of constructing an outfit or constructing an interior space, right? Like we had when I was growing up, we had a living room that was all blue. And it was just a very soft blue, but we had blue carpet. Um, the furniture was blue. Everything was blue. <laughs> and, uh, but it went together so well because my mom, she's really good with color and in how she designs things and puts things together in, in the home. And I feel like she was kind of an integral part of my experience in learning to train my eye with, you know, how things go together and how color works as they interact with different objects. But then there's also, you know, color theory of course, you know, like thinking about the opponent process theory of color, like how we view color, but also color theory like going back to like Joseph Albers and and also just in general in design like what what you should never put together, right? Like mm-hmm. or what you should or shouldn't do as far as like saturation goes. I feel like I, you know, again, have been training my eye for that um for for color all my life and I've been very cognizant of it and I've studied it in school, but I still struggle with it too. I, it's still a challenge. You know, it's not easy to put things, especially when you're dealing with, you know, multiple objects and patterns, right. It's not necessarily like, I'm just, okay, this goes together and it just works. Right. It's mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, it it's still very much a challenge to me and I'm still not necessarily happy with all of my work, even, you know, <laughs> like there's always things where I'm like, Oh, I don't you know, now that I look at this longer, I want to change that color. Right. And I could, if I wanted to, I guess, being, being digital, but, but yeah, I think just, uh, just as far as color goes, it's really, it continues to be a process of me training my eye to see how different colors interact. And by, you know, kind of setting aside what, what I was doing, you know, with those very, those six very specific colors, moving on from that i opened up a lot of possibilities for my artwork but then i also found refound i guess this this joy in in color combinations and in working with color and and that challenge of finding what works
1: the one thing that's really interesting about it too is that you have you know kind of like infinite possibilities then in a way in terms of editing you know that's a lot different than painting you know i would imagine mm-hmm. if i could just change you know the color of an oil painting. <laughs> you know, while I'm working through it, I probably would never. I don't know. It'd just be a different, a different challenge or, or something different to think about. So there's, there's got to be something that's interesting about that, and then also, you know, just kind of working through it, through them all. I'm sure that you kind of continue to kind of build, you know, an aesthetic. I guess too, one piece that I especially want to make sure that we talk about is the uh, Vanitas self-portrait. So I mean, I'm assuming that at some point you're, you're like, oh, I've, I've got to do one of these.
2: I had
0: what I thought, I guess I had reached the end of the series with number 17. I thought that was it, you know, that I had kind of reached the, the saturation point of the series at that, at that time. And so I was like, well, I have a little bit of, I guess, OCD, mm-hmm. I suppose. And I, I really like things to be in threes which is interesting how how Instagram works and how the Instagram grid, how things are set up on there, working in threes and like the triptych. But anyways, I sort of wanted to round out everything into um, like an 18th piece. I didn't necessarily want to do another still life at that point. But I had also not done a self portrait in a very long time, at least not like like this. And I also thought that, you know, kind of giving more context to the series and sort of documenting this moment in time. At the time that I had done the self-portrait, Columbia, Missouri, had just issued a, a mask mandate. And so wherever you went outside, you had to have this mask. And it became also a very political thing, mm-hmm. and which is still bizarre to me. But aside from that, it was something that we all had to do. We all were sharing in this experience, whether we wanted to be or not. Of course, none of us wanted it, but whether we, you know, agreed with it or not, we all were a part of this. And so I thought it was it was fitting to do the the self portrait in the mask as sort of kind of a a marker of time, and again of documenting this experience that we were all sharing in. And yeah, and. After that, I actually didn't make any more in this series for a few months because there were there were other things happening in the world that, you know, I thought that, that now was the time to sort of take a break from my perspective of the world and give others, I guess others sort of deserved a, a bigger platform for their voice. And I didn't think it was necessarily right for me to continue to promote my own work. Uh, and so... So anyways, the the series stopped there for a few months, and then I picked it up again in mid-September, right after we had started school again. And the school that I work at, we've actually had a surprisingly low number of cases, and hopefully that continues to be. Mm -hmm. of COVID cases, but, um, there were other bigger universities around me where it was spiking horribly. It was a reminder that, you know, we still need to be very aware of, you know, ourselves, our, our health, this thing was not over. In fact, you know, it's seems as though it's going to get a lot worse. So, yeah. And I had started up another few of these just because I feel like, you know, it's, it's still very much a thing, you know, while, while I'm not necessarily quarantined in a way that I was back in March or April, mm-hmm. um, I'm still very aware that, that this is something to still be taken very seriously.
1: Yeah. I think it's going to leave a pretty big impression on everybody for, for years and years and years. You know, I don't certainly ever remember experience anything quite like it. So I feel like there's going to be libraries documenting all of the, things going on in 2020, all the difficult times and Mm -hmm. the weirdness of it all, but it's great to think about how you've stayed productive and making a lot of work. So could you, you know, just refresh us, you know, where, where's the best place to, to follow your work?
0: Honestly, probably the best place to check out my work is Instagram because it's, I guess the most up to date and also, you know, I'll every once in a while post like progress shots and stuff like that there. But Instagram and then my website, bethanyirons.com. As far as like shows coming up, I will be having a, a solo exhibition at the Clear Lake Arts Center in Clear Lake, Iowa in the fall of next year. If all goes okay, uh, it should be an in-person show. And right now I'm uh, involved in this online exhibition through Visual Space on Instagram. They're at visual SPC but it's it's a really cool idea as far as like they set all the artwork up in like this 3d sort of space I guess that you can navigate online Mm -hmm. that's really interesting so so that's kind of what I what I got coming up but yeah Instagram is probably the best way to view my work and I'm always looking for more art to follow on there and if anybody's you know interested in still live series uh or you know if you're or even just Instagram research in general. I'm really interested in that as well. So I'd love to talk with anybody more if they want to like shoot me a, a message or something on there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I'm looking at your timeline right now um, at Bethany underscore Irons. There's tons of work there, and obviously on your website. So you know, definitely go and and peruse. I mean, you won't run out of things to look at. I don't think. <laughs> Well, again, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about all about your work today. It's been really, really fun. I'm just happy that you know I became familiar with it and you.
0: Yeah, you know, I love your podcast and you know I found a lot of new artists on your your Instagram as well. so so yeah, thanks for for doing this and for inviting me to be a part of it. Um, I'm really I'm really honored. so thank you.
1: Thanks once again to Bethany for joining me. Be sure to check out her website, BethanyIrons.com. And of course, follow her on Instagram at Bethany underscore irons. She's currently part of an exhibition online at Visual Space. That's V-I-S-U-A-L-S-P-C dot com and the same at Instagram. So you can see some of her work there. She's also got that upcoming solo exhibition next fall. So make sure that you follow her once again on Instagram at Bethany underscore irons. And of course, you can always see what she's working on there. So go do that right now. I would remind listeners that there's just a few weeks left to apply to Studio Break's 2020 Pro Competition. Our juror Liz Tran will be selecting five artists for an upcoming appearance on Studio Break and to share their work. Again, professional artists include emerging, mid-career, established, and outsider artists. Unfortunately, students cannot apply to this competition. The competition's open to all 2D, 3D, and new media artists. If you want more information, go to studiobreak.com, look for our competition page, and it's quite simple to apply. You submit a small fee, you send an email identifying who you are, and including a website and or Instagram account, and you are all set. Your work will be reviewed, and who knows, you might wind up on Studio Break. I would note that the first 50 BIPOC artists will have their fees waived. So once again, studiobreak.com, look for the competition page for more details. Again, the deadline for this is November 1st. If you're a new listener to Studio Break, be sure and head on over to studiobreak.com. We've got a bunch of different artists featured there, each with images of their artwork as well as links to their websites and Instagram. You can listen to the interviews right with the default player or click those links and subscribe to the podcast so that you always have something to listen to in the studio. And, of course, if you like the podcast, please help spread the word or even about the competition. That would be awesome. Again, you can find us in a variety of social media formats. So be sure and like our Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter at Studio Break. And, of course, on Instagram, be sure to follow at Studio underscore Break. Let me take a quick second to thank Skylar Mail. He provides the music to Studio Break. You can check it out at SkylarMail.net. If you'd like to see some of my paintings, especially as I'm spouting off to guess about color, go visit DavidLinaway.com. I have a bunch of suburban-slash-architectural-based paintings up there for you to peruse, so check it out there. You can find me on Facebook or Instagram or twitter at david linaway and of course it's always great to hear from listeners that enjoy this podcast so give us a shout out either on the facebook page or if you want to shout out to me directly that'd be awesome again i love making these so that you always have something to listen to in the studio so i hope that you enjoyed today's episode i hope that your studio is productive stay safe everybody we'll talk to you real soon